If you could please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, and how appropriate on a day when we celebrate baptisms that we look at the baptism of our Lord Jesus. All four gospel accounts record something about the Lord's baptism. Luke includes just two verses. And yet, so much to be learned from these two verses. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. good student of the Bible ought to ask questions when he or she is reading the Bible. Ask questions, be an active reader, an active learner. And the most obvious question this morning when reading this text is, why would Jesus get baptized? We understand that John's baptism was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We read in Luke 3, 3, and he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If Jesus is without sin, then why a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin? Something significant about this act. We need to repent from our sinful ways, from our sinful false beliefs, from our sinful desires those desires that long for things that bring death instead of life. But Jesus is the way. There is no sinful way. He is the truth. There is no falsehood in Him. He is the life. There's nothing in Him that desires the path that leads to death and separation. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He does not need to repent. In fact... Viewing the word repentance as turning from sin, Jesus cannot repent. There's something you and I can do that Jesus can't. There's lots of things we can do that God can't. The Bible says God cannot lie. We're quite adept at it. And so in no way does that limit God's power. God's nature limits himself from doing things that would be contrary to his own person. He cannot lie. And Jesus cannot repent. He doesn't need to repent. If repent means to change the mind or to turn, anything Jesus would turn from, he'd be turning from goodness and righteousness to unrighteousness and falsehood. So certainly he didn't need to repent. He can't repent. What is he doing getting baptized by John the Baptist? John the Baptizer. Remember, John said, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We said baptism with the Holy Spirit is when you receive Christ as Savior and the Holy Spirit 
cleanses you and indwells you and gives you the power to overcome sin and be sanctified. Baptism with fire is judgment for all those who reject the Savior. This morning I want to give you two answers to the question, why did Jesus get baptized? Hundreds, if not thousands, were being baptized by John the Baptist. In fact, his name became synonymous with baptism. That was his name, John the Baptizer. If you did something so much that it became what you were known for, that would become your title. You can imagine the scene at the Jordan River in like a festival setting. Thousands of people, the spectacle must have been amazing. And one at a time, people coming to the waters to be baptized. I remember hearing a story um, years back at Grace Community Church where John MacArthur pastors, they had a baptism. Um, oh, what's the word? Help me out, honey. What did they call that? Uh, you forgot the word too, huh? So with all the people who hadn't got baptized yet and wanted to get baptized, um, but at that church, you walk out into the waters and you read your testimony in front of a thousand people. And so they just said, one Sunday, come, we'll hear your testimony beforehand, and then we'll just line you up around the church. And they just, one after another, after another, after another, just got every, uh, you know, couple hundred people baptized in one afternoon. All those people who were kind of afraid to go out into the waters and read their testimony. So... That seemed like times a thousand and outdoors. One after another, people coming down to the waters to be baptized. And we also read that people came down and weren't baptized. They were just observing the spectacle. Among them, a lot of the religious leaders who felt they had no need to be baptized. Remember later that Jesus would be confronted by some scribes about why he cleansed the temple and he said, well, let me ask you a question. John's baptism, was that from God or from man? And they said, uh-oh, if we say from man, we're going to get mobbed because the people think it was from God. They're going to be angry with us. But if we say it's from God, he's going to say, then why didn't you get baptized? And so they said, well, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then I'm not answering your question either. So... We know many came down to the waters and were not baptized because they thought they had no need of baptism. And in an honor-shame culture where your honor was the most valuable possession and avoiding shame at all costs was the goal to publicly be baptized, identifying yourself as a sinner, someone unclean, defiled, who needed to be completely cleansed, was the last thing anyone wanted to do. Baptism was for Gentiles and Samaritans, not Jews. And so for Jews to come down and get baptized is a big deal. And I know it's a big deal today, and I know there are people in this room who've never been baptized in your believer. And there's something about getting up in front of everyone that just seems embarrassing to you. It's supposed to be humiliating in the right kind of way. Don't let your pride get in the way of you getting baptized. The whole point is to overcome your pride, to publicly 
declare, I need a Savior. I was buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk a new life. I was baptized as an infant in the Lutheran Church, later, though, baptized as a believer at that church at Grace Community Church while I was in seminary, you know. Hi, I'm a seminary student. I'm finally getting baptized. It's, it's humiliating in a good way, in a good way. And so before I get any further, if you've never been baptized as a believer, think deeply about what you're hearing today. John wasn't only baptizing, he was also preaching. And we know what kind of fiery preaching, baptism of repentance and you brood of vipers, who told you to flee the wrath? To, I mean, you know, this kind of preaching that we don't hear much from our pulpits today. So quite the spectacle. And if you think, use your sanctified imagination of all the ways Jesus could inaugurate his public ministry, because all the commentators agree this, this kicks off Jesus' public ministry. Of all the ways he could have done this, couldn't we think of, in human terms, a better way to kick off your ministry? I mean, when you're the son of God and you've got the power, how about a military victory like David? Slaying Goliath, taking down Rome. How about some grand political speech? You know, like politicians do and put put up the big columns and talk about how you're going to heal the planet and whatnot. Oh, he gave a speech shortly after his baptism at a small synagogue in a nondescript town and asked for the role of Isaiah, read prophecy, and said, hey, today that's fulfilled. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement, but in such a small setting, you'd think Jesus would have had a bigger platform. Or what about a miracle, like the feeding of the 5,000, which he does later in his ministry, but why not at the beginning of his ministry? In fact, the first miracle he'll perform publicly is at the wedding feast of Cana, Turns water into wine, but only a few people know. And he's like, hush, hush, don't tell anyone. So this isn't at all, from human terms, how we would write the script. We would go big, we would go bold, very public. Certainly was public, but it wasn't exalting. It was very humiliating, very humbling to go into the waters. And so in many ways, his baptism looked no different than what we saw today. But in important ways, his baptism was like no other baptism has ever been before or since. While he was being baptized, coming up out of the waters while he's praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, came down in in bodily form like a dove, not a dove, like a dove. Holy Spirit's not a dove. Don't picture a dove. I know we use the dove as a Christian symbol. Read the text. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form and descended like a dove. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person. 
Three persons, one God. Latest Pew Research shows that 85% of Americans say they're Christians, and of those 85%, 65% think the Holy Spirit is a force, like Star Wars. And I think half of them don't affirm Jesus as God. So we're living in a country of people who say they're Christians, but they're Unitarians at best. Just we're biblically illiterate. The Holy Spirit's a person. He, in some way that we can't fathom what it looked like, he descended in bodily form, but he descended the way like a dove would fly down. And then the first person of the Trinity, the Father's voice comes down from heaven. You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now, this will happen again at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But in this moment, it's very personal. The father speaking to the son personally. Yes, a a lucky number of, of thousands, we don't know how many, got to hear. That must have been extraordinary, frightening. Anytime we see in the Bible, people hear the voice of God a frightening experience. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. So Jesus was baptized publicly first to be identified as Messiah and the Son of God. This inaugurated his ministry by pointing out his identity, because up to this point, I mean, other than his parents and a select few people knowing of his miraculous virgin birth and his purpose on earth, He lived a life with the exception of the teaching at the temple when he's 12 of uh, of not notoriety at all. And so he appeared to the crowds to just be one more man in his early 30s coming down to be baptized. And in the sense that Jesus is fully man, he, he was just like every other man that day. But being fully God made him unlike any other man that day. And sinless. But this was a public coming out party, his inaugural. The Savior is here, and he chooses baptism as his first act of public ministry. We're going to look at the other Gospels to give us a fuller picture of what's going on here. We call this harmonizing the Gospels. They all teach the same thing, but each Gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us a maybe a little different angle, a little different perspective, never contradicting each other, just giving us the fuller picture. And so we'll go to the Gospel of John. It gets a little confusing because John's writing about John. John the Apostle writing about John the Baptist. So keep your Johns straight. Now they had been sent from the the Pharisees. We pick up the story. Some people the Pharisees sent to go ask John the Baptist about his identity. He's becoming the most popular, the most recognized figure 
in Israel, John the Baptist, this, this nobody from nowhere wearing, you know, who's this guy? He's not from the Sanhedrin. He's not from the synagogues. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's not important. Who is this guy? They asked him and said to him, why, why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Now, we know Jesus said that John the Baptist is a type of Elijah. He's, he's the Elijah that Malachi the prophet had predicted. But he's not the Christ, so he's not the Messiah. He's, he's not the actual Elijah, and he's not the prophet, which is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, Moses being this great prophet of God. But God says through Moses, that a greater prophet is coming. And of course, lots of prophets came, but this greater prophet, the prophet, we know is Jesus Christ, the prophet. Yesterday, uh, we had a wedding here at the church, and um, beautiful wedding, and afterwards a reception, and uh, thought it would just be a time of hanging out with my family, you know, some iced tea, some hors d'oeuvres, cut the cake, go home. But the Lord, in his providence, sits my wife and I at a table with a Catholic woman married to a Palestinian Muslim. We had great conversation. <laughs> These people were very sweet people, very sweet. And uh, he was very humble and inquisitive and what's it like to be a pastor and all ask all all the big questions how do we know which religion's right what's it like to be a pastor what's it like to be a pastor's wife how do you balance being a pastor and being a father at home he saw the, our kids and he's like your you know your family looks like they're doing really well and how do you how do you juggle that then he began telling us stories about his kindness to people of other faiths, how he helped take care of a Catholic priest with cancer, how he helped a Jewish woman in her final days by finding a rabbi who would come speak to her, even though she didn't actively attend synagogue. It's a beautiful life, and I wouldn't say it was coming off at all as prideful, but in the Muslim faith, you work your way to heaven through your good works. And he was demonstrating to me that, that he was a good man. And I said, well, I assume that you consider Jesus to be a prophet. He said, yes, that is correct. But Muhammad is the prophet in the Muslim faith. And I said, well, you, you know Jesus is the son of God. And he said, then we have all these religions and all these people... How do we know? I said, well, we can only know if it's revealed to us. And what all the religions of the world have in common, different than Christianity, is all the other religions of the world is man trying to work himself to God. And Christianity is God doing all the work, bringing mankind to himself. Huge difference. Night and day difference.
You know, and we talked about people who don't live out their faith very well. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you at all. There's people who call themselves Christians, Muslims, Hindus, you name it, that don't live according to their the teachings of the religion. But that doesn't change truth at all. Very sweet man. So he finally asks, okay, big question. That'll be my last one. Am I going to heaven? So I can't answer that. Only God can. But I know how you can have assurance that you're going to heaven. I can't tell you that you're not going, but I can tell you how you can have assurance that you are going. At the end of the day, I don't know what's in your heart. I know if you receive Jesus Christ as the Son of God, Lord and Savior, and believe that he died for your sins, you can have assurance. And it is the only way you'll have assurance. And this was revealed by Scripture because if it's just my opinion, then what's it worth? And he said absolutely nothing. And he, so he, he got it. So, now he didn't receive Christ right there. But, wow, always be ready for an answer for the hope that is found within you, right? You never know. You don't have to travel to the Middle East to witness to Muslims. God's bringing the harvest to us. John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nobody else got that designation from John the Baptist. Everyone else who got baptized, behold, another sinner. Behold, another sinner. Why aren't you getting in the waters? But Jesus comes and he says, behold. And scripturally, often when you see behold, what follows is God. Behold, our God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Muslim was telling me about a friend of his who's also Muslim who used to live in Bear Valley and raise these special lambs that Middle Eastern people like to eat. He was saying beef is for the poor, lamb is for the rich. And I'm like, well, there's another segue to the gospel. <laughs> Let me tell you about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world backstage with Nathan first service and noticed on the table where they prepare the Lord's Supper there was a plate of bread and then there's a Weber charcoal barbecue for the auction dinner brand new beautiful Weber and I'm like Nathan look and he got it he was like ah old covenant new covenant <laughs> aren't we glad that we no longer have to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice a once and for all sacrifice. This is my body given for you, the Lamb of God. And when the Jews celebrated the first Passover, think about it. They re, by faith, they put the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost to avoid judgment by the angel of death. And then they leave Egypt and Pharaoh 
reneges and sends the army after them, certain death on this side of the Red Sea, and they pass through the waters to life emerging on the other side. It's a picture of baptism. In fact, the, the Bible says that is a type, a picture of baptism. Dead on one side of the waters, alive on the other. And as Nathan correctly taught, the baptism doesn't save you. It's what Jesus has done for you. The baptism just identifies that we were buried with Christ and we were raised in newness of life. And then God's people rebel and they spend 40 years in the wilderness and all that first generation that passed through the waters died in the wilderness. And the second generation went from the wilderness to the promised land through what? The Jordan. Passing through back like baptism again. This is why this is such a, a powerful symbol in the Christian faith. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Who was born first? John the Baptist. And he says, this man, Jesus, existed before me. That could only be revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed to John the Baptist the identity and purpose of the Christ. And he says something very strange. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him. These are cousins. Apparently, it's not like Tehachapi where every, no one leaves and you just grow up with all your cousins. And well, how, how would he know which one is the Christ then? But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is is the Son of God. We have Jesus' credentials publicly identified. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior. The Holy Spirit has not only anointed him for a special purpose, like we've been seeing in Luke's Gospel, the Holy Spirit anointing people for a temporary special task. This time the Holy Spirit comes down and remains permanently This is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the chosen one. This is the righteous one. This is the only one who came out of the waters and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And the only one who was baptized and came out of the waters and a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Look at all that we learn about Christ from his baptism. He's the Lamb of God. So he's the sacrificial substitute for our sins. He existed before John. He's the eternal one. He would be the one upon whom the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove and remained upon. So 
all of us in Christ could have the Holy Spirit indwell in us permanently. He's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. He's the one who has the authority to judge both the righteous who place their faith in Christ and the unrighteous who deny Christ and their baptism will be with fire, a baptism of judgment. And we find out he's the son of God. In order for one's credentials to be authenticated, it needed to be on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you're claiming to be the son of God, how do you get two or three witnesses that you're the son of God? Who's going to testify that you're the son of God? Who has more authority than you or equal authority? The Holy Spirit, who is God, descends and remains upon him. And the Father, who is God, declares, this is my son. You are my son. There's your two witnesses. So John's witnessing because the Holy Spirit revealed to him these truths. Yesterday, after the wedding, you got to sign the marriage document, and we still have a little bit of Christianity left in our culture. And what do you do? You get two witnesses to sign the marriage certificate. I think it's actually legally now almost just ceremonial. If we left those blank accidentally and mailed it in, I think they're, they're still legally married. But where did that come from? That's... A, that's That's from the Bible. Matthew's gospel is going to give us our second answer. Why was Jesus baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. This is the more difficult one. To fulfill all righteousness. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you. I'm the sinner here. Not you. And the verb tense in the Greek is a a continuous. No, 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 this is all wrong. You should be baptizing me. I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Here's a man who knew his place. We don't see this kind of humility from our celebrities. And at this time, John the Baptist, probably the greatest celebrity in Israel, he's like, whoa, no, I'm not even fit to untie the thong of your sandal, which is so humiliating to wash feet. He's saying, I'm not even worthy to remove your sandal, so to wash your feet. I'm not even worthy to wash your feet. I can't even untie the sandal. That's how unworthy I am compared to you. But Jesus answered and said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Wow. It's such a privilege to baptize anyone, to baptize Jesus. Can't wait to meet John the Baptist. In his glorified body. Right, because the whole thing with the head. Um, yeah. what, if Jesus is already righteous, what does he mean to fulfill all righteousness? 
No one but God is righteous. Let's get a definition of righteous here. No one but God is righteous, perfectly righteous, right in every aspect, good in every aspect. Everything he does and thinks and says is right. That is righteousness. We can exhibit righteous behavior, but we can't be righteous on our own. The scriptures are clear about this. We can't be good. We can do good things. We can say good things. We can model good, but... In our entirety, we can't be good on our own. We're born into sin. We're born as no good. No bueno. No good. Jesus said to him, this is the rich young ruler who runs up to Jesus and calls him good teacher. And Jesus cuts him off and says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. are Are you calling me God? I mean, you're right. If you are, but are you calling me God? Because I know what question you're going to ask. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not even one. Oh, that's just Paul's theology. No, Paul's quoting the Old Testament. That's why it's in all caps there. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The theology packed into this verse sets up the entire book of Romans. It's, it's all about being righteous and that our righteousness has to come from outside ourselves. It says a righteousness of God. Now, there's no preposition there in the Greek. The word God, theos, is in what's called the genitive case, which, is it of God or from God? And theologians argue, is this a righteousness of God or a righteousness from God? Yes, that's exactly the concept. It's both. It's the righteousness of God. It's His righteousness, and He gives it to us, so it's a righteousness from God. The gospel reveals that the righteousness we're looking for, the righteousness that my new Muslim friend is looking for, comes from God because it's of God. It is the only way to be righteous. Yes, he did many righteous things, but if he wants to be declared righteous by God and enter heaven, then he'll need a righteousness, not his own. So will you, so will I. And the only one, the only man who doesn't need an alien righteousness is Jesus Christ. Because he is God. He has the righteousness of God. And he came to give it to us. He's going to take your test for you. I know it's like cheating, right? But but it's sanctified cheating. God God has ordained it this way. He's going to take the test for you. And he passes the test. He's going to fulfill all righteousness while he's here. He's going to show us the way the first Adam should have lived. He's going to do it perfectly. He's going to have the perfect record. And then he's going to die the death we deserve. And so he takes our punishment and we get his perfect righteousness. It's a wonderful deal for us. And sounds like a horrible deal for him. But it's what he'll be worshipped and glorified for all eternity. So it turns out to be a pretty good deal for him too. 
Jesus fulfilled the law for us so we could be given his perfect record. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the law, first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets kind of is the rest of the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. People try to change the law of God or the standard so that they can call themselves righteous. You're going to have to change the standard if you're going to call yourself righteous by your own merits. My, my friend I met yesterday, that's exactly what he was doing. He, he changed the standard. And he had some really wonderful stories. And honestly, the life he was describing to me was more compelling than many Christians I know. And we know that to be true, and it shouldn't be true, but it just is. By God's grace, he's given this man an extra dose of compassion and, and mercy. Very gentle spirit, very, very kind and loving man. I could have talked to him for days. Just a very sweet man. And it's tempting to go, well, certainly he's got to be going to heaven. But you let your theology inform that decision, not your emotions. You really want to base your whole salvation on your emotions? Really? If your emotions ever let you down? All the time. God's word ever let you down? Never. People say there is no objective standard of morality. That's, that's our current culture. There's no objective standard of morality until you violate their standard and then they're mad at you. You bigot, you hater. Ask as a church that you'd lift my, my parents up in prayer. They're, they're having to leave their church after 48 years in the same church. Their denomination has gone very liberal and their church... In spite of their pleas to not, please don't do this, they called an openly gay pastor married to another man raising adopted children. And they said, we just, we just can't stay. And longtime friends are calling them bigots and homophobes. And they're not. They love the Lord. And they've, they've demonstrated 48 years. So I'm angry at Satan for dividing God's people like this. So they need a new church where the word of God is proclaimed and you could lift them in prayer. And, and they're friends. Compose myself, sorry. I don't know if they went to their church this Sunday or what. This was going to be the first Sunday. Jesus had to identify with us as sinners to be our substitute. So he lived this perfect life. And part of a life of righteousness is declaring before God, I'm not worthy to humble yourself. Baptism is an act of humility. Yeah, Christ didn't need to in his divinity, but in his humanity to fulfill all righteousness, he humbled himself in the waters of baptism. But he did something else in those waters. He identified with sinners. He's going to be our substitute on the cross. 
And so he started his ministry by identifying with sinners in the waters of baptism and ended his ministry identifying with sinners on the cross. What, what a humble Savior. That's not how we'd write the script if we were the Son of God. Man, I'd take those credentials out for a spin, right? Our humble Savior. Keep in mind, Jesus wasn't baptized as an infant. That ought to say something to us. Again, if you were baptized as an infant and you never submitted to believer's baptism, I highly encourage you from the Scriptures, if it's good enough for your Savior, it ought to be good enough for you. Say, well, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, well, be embarrassed to be a sinner. Boast in the Lord in your baptism. It's not about you. It's about your Savior. You don't, you're only embarrassed if you make it about you. Though he was sinless, Christ humbled himself by becoming a man. We have such a high view of ourselves as people that to think that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man is so foreign to us. Well, he wasn't like just any other man. He was like the greatest man. Compared to God, the greatest man ever is nothing. To come down from the throne of heaven from perfection and become a man, this is how the Bible describes it. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to be treated like a sinner. The wages of sin is death. The one who didn't need to die, died for us. Yes, man has great value because we're made in the image of God. We're different than all the other created order. We are not just glorified animals, no matter what the billboard on 14 says. Dogs are not children. I love my pets. They're not people. Don't hate the messenger. <laughs> and yet, because we are made in the image of God, this is why our rebellion against God is so devastating. Our animals disobey us all the time. What are you going to do? But people disobeying against their master, their creator, their good God is devastating. And it took Jesus dying on the cross to reconcile us back to God. So why did Jesus get baptized? To publicly identify himself as the perfect one, the righteous one, the savior, the son of God. But also to identify with us as sinners. To fulfill all righteousness. He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's a beautiful thing. 
When Jesus came up out of the waters, the Holy Spirit descended on him and stayed on him. When, when we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us and stays and gives us the power that raised Christ from the dead to overcome sin in our life and to fulfill the Great Commission and to be sanctified and turned into the image of Christ day by day. Secondly, when we put our faith in Christ, in the same way Christ got to hear, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Finally, through faith in Christ and only in Christ can we finally hear the words we've been yearning to hear our whole life. This is my Son. This is my daughter. In whom I'm well pleased. Not apart from Christ, in and through Christ. This is my Son. This is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased pleased we all yearn to hear those words and in a very real way i hope our baptismal candidates as they came out of the water in a sense heard those words this is my son my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased and now we can walk in newness of life and can't wait to hear him tell us at the end well done good and faithful servant well done Father, thank you for making a way for us to be sons and daughters and hear those words that you are pleased with us. Thank you, Jesus, for living a life that makes us pleasing to the Father. Holy Spirit, help us to live a life that is truly pleasing to our Father. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I bless you. You're dismissed.